media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your hosts, Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. The Federal Aviation Administration handles 16 and a half million flights every year. Remarkably, there are 5,400 aircraft in the sky at peak operation times, all of which are handled by over 14,000 air traffic controllers. Believe it or not, 44 and a half billion pounds of freight is shipped by air each year, and there are almost 20,000 U.S. airports in operation. That sounds like a pretty complicated system to operate smoothly, Jay. It, it certainly does, and I am sure of our 50,000 listeners, uh, almost all of them fly on occasion, know very little about how their flights are, are managed. And so I think we have an opportunity to uh, explain a lot of interesting information to our listeners that they don't know. Now, years ago, the cockpit was open, and when you got on a plane, you could kind of walk in, say hi to the captain and ask uh, questions. But of course, since people started hijacking planes, that all uh, ended. So I think in recent years, our average passenger knows less about how our air traffic system works than they did uh, years ago. And we are so fortunate to have with us today, Steve Markham, a captain with American Airlines. Uh, for transparency, I will tell you, Steve and I go back almost to the very day he started flying airplanes. Steve was in the Air Force. He was a mechanic. And uh, back around 1980, started training to get various credentials to be an airline pilot. We met each other right around 1980 when I began my 42-year uh, skydiving career. And Steve would have been one of the first uh, pilots who dropped me out of an, out of an airplane from about 12,000 <laughs> feet. So we go back a long way and he's taught me a great deal. And I think this is a unique opportunity for uh, our listeners to understand uh, how the system works. Steve has worked for a handful of different uh, airlines over the years, uh, now with American Airlines. Uh, this is a particularly appropriate time to be discussing this topic. So as most people know, the past week, uh, Southwest Airlines has canceled 80% of their flights, stranding hundreds of thousands of passengers and even more uh, luggage. It's, it's really been a disaster. Uh, the government doesn't totally understand it because they've given a lot of money to Southwest Airlines to uh, bail them out, and they don't know <clears throat> what was done with that money. So uh, everybody's going to be reading about this uh, disaster the past week. We hope it doesn't continue through the next week, but we'll learn a lot about how the, uh, the system operates uh, right now. So I, I have many, many questions, and I'll start off with very basic things and ask you, Steve, who controls the American skies. Well, Jay, uh, the uh, Federal Aviation Administration controls uh, all the air traffic control, all the air traffic over the United States. It's uh, th they 
break it up into eight different regions over the United States, uh, the Southwest region, Northwest, Eastern, Southern Great Lakes, Central, New England, and Western Pacific, and uh, control a lot of the flights that, uh, that go out towards the, uh, the Caribbean as well. Now, what is the relationship of commercial airlines with the FAA? Well, the FAA sets the, the regulations. They write the regulations that the, the airlines have to abide by. And, uh, that's, and the FAA also handles the airspace over the United States and, and some of the Caribbean. So that's, uh, that's pretty much what their relationship is. How many FAA offices are there in the country? I think there's about 80 offices covering about uh, 77 geographical areas. Uh, and I can't name them all. But yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting for our Canadian listeners, I should tell you that the FAA is equivalent to our airworthiness department and different other sections within Transport Canada. So that's where we handle it here. I actually, you know, Steve, I actually worked as an airworthiness engineer for the Transport Canada for, I guess, about a year, maybe two years, I can't remember. And, um, you know, we did the investigation on the Boeing 747 after the large India Airlines crash. You might remember there were, we were told we had to inspect inside the tail for cracks and things like that. Mm. And at at that time, actually, we found, I don't know if it's still the case, but we found that Air Canada was doing everything they were supposed to do before we even told them <laughs> that they were one of the best airlines. Are they still one of the best, in your opinion? Air Canada? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, have, uh, I have not heard anything negative about Air Canada. Uh, yeah. Most of the uh, U.S. airlines are, are, uh, are very good as well. Um, uh-huh. Since, uh, you know, deregulation of the airlines back in the uh, was it 80, 78? Uh, and then all of a sudden, the huge influx of new airlines. Uh, after, what, 30, 30 40 years, uh, we're right back to the same seven legacy airlines again. You know? Yeah. So, and uh, maintenance-wise, we've come full circle. I mean, these new airlines that were starting up, they had issues. I think Southwest had some issues as well, but, uh, uh, but the federal government uh, seems to keep a good handle on it. And so- yeah. Probably you know, some just, of the safest airlines out there. Just a follow-up question to part of Jay's intro. I used to get up into the cockpit of every airplane that I flew in. I mean, every type of airplane, um, because I, you know, I wanted to see how it operated. And I got my daughter up when she was like about five, and she sat in the cockpit actually. You know, after they landed. <laughs> but regardless, that's no longer allowed, is it? Well, you can uh, as long as during the boarding process or even the deplaning process, the door is always open. You're welcome oh, yeah. to come up and say hello, and we oh, usually do. We have kids come up and say hello. Uh, yeah. But once that once that uh, main cabin door goes closed and the cockpit door gets shut, it doesn't open again yeah. uh, unless the uh, crews need to come out for whatever they, reason. Because they would let me in during the flight, um, I, but I guess yeah. that's, that's taboo now. <laughs> that's that's all over. Yeah, it's all over. <laughs> Thanks to the terrorists. Now, uh, Steve, Steve, explain how when a commercial plane flies across country who controls where it can fly how fast it can fly how high it can fly well uh take the last part first how high it can fly is based on the the weight of the airplane and its and its uh, operating limitations 
Uh, when I was flying for the airlines, we typically fly in the uh, mid to upper uh, uh, 30s, like 350, 370, 390. Uh, flying for corporate, when I was flying corporate aircraft, uh, we were in the, in the 40s. Uh, as far as the route uh, is concerned, uh, the airlines, they have a, a system, depending on where you're going in the country, they have routes to follow. Uh, they can make their own route. Uh, if you're flying privately, you can actually file direct. Uh, that may go through with the FAA. It may not. Uh, if there's a, if they want to alter your route, they will make that that uh, that known uh, during your when you get your clearance on the ground. Um, and what was the other part of that, Jay? Well, I, I want to know what the, who controls the speed at which they um, can fly. It's, the speed is based on uh, well. You go as fast as you possibly can go. It's based on what the air, airplane is certified for until the FAA tells you to slow down or speed up. You know, uh, Obviously, if, if you're already doing the max speed that your plane can do and they ask you, if they, they usually will ask you, uh, can you pick it up? Uh, you basically tell them, no, I can't. So then they'll make other plans. Usually you're following somebody. If you're going into a major hub, uh, say like New York or Chicago, uh, sometimes you get behind a, uh, you know, a slower airplane. And they've got a they've got a amount of spacing they need between aircraft five typically five to ten miles depending on the weather. If it's nice weather, five miles is good enough. Ten uh, for bad weather, then they got to start spacing everybody out like ten miles apart. So uh, so speed uh, so that's when they start to control your speed. So you're not going faster than the guy in front of you. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes uh, sense. Now uh, I've had the pleasure of flying with you and your own small plane and, and hearing all the voices that uh, uh, go on during the flight. Uh, I don't hear them when you're flying a, a, a commercial American airline jet, but how do you know who to listen to? There sounds like a lot of activity uh, going on on the, the radio and some might, uh, might uh, be for you and uh, others not for you. How do you know who to listen to? You have to just have to pay attention. Uh, listen for your call sign. Uh, you're usually working with one controller at a time, but that one controller could be talking to multiple, multiple flights. And sometimes, uh, it, based, you know, what's been going on here in the last, I don't know, say five, 10 years is they've been uh, overtasking uh, the controllers. Like, for example, they'll, like on holidays, for example, uh, they try to let as much staff off as possible. So one controller, he will be controlling multiple airplanes, not only on your frequency, but other frequencies at the same time. So sometimes you'll just hear one-way conversations between the controller and somebody on another frequency. And uh, sometimes you know, and the reason why he does that is so they, they can do minimum staffing in the centers. Uh, uh, and I think they do that when there's not going to be a lot of traffic. Uh, like over the holidays, for example, sometimes over the weekends, uh, there'll, there'll be a minimum staff. So you can hear them doing one-way conversations. So you just hope when you do talk to them, you're not stepping on somebody on the other frequency, which happens quite often. And what she has to come back and say, everybody just stand by. I'll get back to you when I get a chance. So it gets it pretty sounds, busy. It sounds like both flying and controlling is a very stressful job. You have to pay such uh, close attention. Uh, is that is that true? Do you have trouble finding, uh, uh, you know, people who who fit the bill as both 
pilots and controllers because of the stress of the job? I don't think uh, I don't think being a pilot is as stressful as being a controller working uh, a high volume uh, airspace like much like New York. Uh, I, I don't I don't remember or I don't know if you remember the movie Pushing Tin. I can't remember the actors that were in that, but that was a probably a pretty good uh, characterization of uh, controllers and how much how much stress that they have. Uh, they're they're controlling multiple multiple flights uh, in rapid succession, and especially approach control going in and out of some of your major airports like uh, New York and Chicago. Uh, whereas as a pilot of you know my airplane, I I only have to listen to one guy, and that's and just listen up for my call sign and do what I'm told to do. Uh, so it's not as bad. I think patrollers have a lot more stress than we do. Yeah, I could have. They have lots of heart attacks and and divorces and all sorts. Uh huh. Of- yeah, I can imagine that. I I do believe there is a. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think there is an age limitation as to the how old you can be as a controller. I know there is for commercial airline pilots. Pilots that's 65. Uh, I'm not sure what it would be for uh, controllers. Uh huh. Right. Right. Could a could a private plane fly without a radio? Sure, it can, as long as you're not uh, in controlled airspace. Uh, um, you can be in controlled airspace, like for example, Jay, uh, around Columbus, Ohio, where we tend to fly. As long as I stay out of uh, what's considered a tower-controlled airspace, which is a you know Class D airspace, or like Port Columbus airspace is cl- considered Class C. Uh, as long as you stay clear of those type of airports, uh, you're fine. Uh, and don't go above a certain altitude, like flight level 180, that's positive controlled area above there. Um, and then you have to also worry about restricted airspace and that sort of thing. As long as you have a chart, you can see where you're going and stay clear of everybody's airspace. You don't need a radio there. There are aircraft out there still today, uh, like the Piper Cub that doesn't even have an electrical system for a radio. So they're out there flying all the time. Wow. Who controls licensing of private and commercial pilots and who and when are they tested? Well, the FAA, again, they write the rules. Uh, they have the regulations. They, uh, if you look under part 61 of the FARs, uh, the, it'll show, it'll basically describe what you need as a private pilot to be a student, or to be a student pilot, a private pilot, an instrument pilot, a commercial pilot, flight instructor, uh, airport, air, airline transport pilot. Uh, all those rules are laid out in part 61. Uh, and the, as far as, uh, let's just say a private pilot, well, student pilots, when they, when they get their student license, uh, they, once they solo, that they, they get an endorsement in their logbooks that they have, basically says they can, they'll need to be reevaluated every 90 days. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I don't understand is how much of the actual flying do you have to do en route or how much is handled by the autopilot? Hmm. Well, most of your private airplanes uh, don't have autopilot, uh, but the, all your commercial airplanes do have an autopilot. Uh, I would say that uh, a good percentage of uh, the flight, say, for example, a, a three or four hour flight, uh, as soon as I take off and I get above 10,000 feet, the autopilot comes on. And oh. it doesn't get turned off again until I'm on uh, at the final approach fix uh, to where I'm going. So mm-hmm. it's on 99% of the time. 
have you ever had to disconnect autopilot and take over the way Neil Armstrong did when he was landing on the moon? <laughs> well, nothing that serious, but yeah, I mean, there are uh, certain, sometimes the uh, autopilot kicks itself off, uh, depending on uh, there's a failure in, in a system and it doesn't like it. It just turns it back over to you and you get an alarm in the cockpit that says the autopilot just kicked off. Okay. Then now we got to figure out why it's kicked off. Uh, if you don't have an autopilot for an airliner and you're above uh, flight level 290, you're in, you're in uh, RVSM, what they call reduced vertical separation airspace. And as long as you're below 41,000 feet, that, that, that's pretty much where everybody cruises, above 29,000, below 41,000. And if you don't have an autopilot, you can't be there because, you know, the, we're, we're separated up there by 1,000 feet vertical separation. And if we don't have an autopilot, we can't be there. Oh. So we have, we have to basically uh, advise the controllers we've had a failure and uh, they will get us out of our VSM airspace. So, so does, does the autopilot determine that you're sufficiently a, a high above or below other aircraft? It just holds the altitude a lot, uh, a lot better than we can. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's very precise and has to be calibrated every, I'm not sure what the, uh, the cycle is. But the, the, it's, uh, it's, it has to be, you have to have the autopilot on because it, it does a better job of holding altitude. When you're that close to other people, uh, opposite direction traffic, we're separated from opposite direction traffic by a thousand feet. Mm -hmm. So, how <laughs> many ahead. hours of flying time are required for various licenses and various types of planes? Well, typically, if you're going to learn how to fly, a private pilot. The minimum, I think, minimum time for a private pilot is about 40 hours of uh, of uh, flight. Most people don't do it in 40 hours. Uh, typically, of that 40 hours, 20 hours minimum has to be with an instructor, and 20 hours as so, uh, solo by yourself. Uh, for a for an instrument license, you need another 40 hours of instruction. Um, for a commercial license, you need at least 250 hours of flight uh, flight time. Uh, with instruction for that, as far as air transport pilot, uh, that went up uh, to about 1,500 hours several years ago after the the accident in Buffalo. Uh, they the NTSB made a recommendation to the FAA, and they and I believe they took it and they raised the. Uh, it used to be a thousand. I think it was around a thousand hours for an air transport pilot license. Uh, it went up to 1,500 hours with a whole lot more requirements uh, to get your air transport pilot. Mm -hmm. um, and for a military pilot, uh, for somebody that comes out of college and goes right into the military and the military trains you how to fly, it takes about a year to get through flight school with the military. And then you do, a, let's say you do, you know, your six years with the military, you come out of the military, you have no license. You have flight time, but you have no civilian licenses. So you would have to go to a, a company and they would then, you know, fly with you and convert your military experience into civilian licenses. Mm -hmm. I would get the impression that military pilots would be ideal choices to be commercial pilots later on. Is that true? True and false. Uh, uh, if, you're, if you're somebody that goes into uh, flying fighters, uh, you don't get that much flight time. You could have six years in, in the military and come out of the military with less than a thousand hours. Because mm -hmm. typically their sorties are about an hour long. They make like two or three sorties a week or less. Uh, uh, but the, it's true uh, that most, so most of your like Air Force uh, pilots, they're flying heavy jets. They're flying 
tankers or flying cargo planes. That's that's basically the same thing we do at the airlines, right? We're flying passengers or we're flying cargo. So yeah, those pilots they have it's an easier transition for them because they're they're working as a crew uh, in the in the cargo planes and the transport planes, uh, whereas the fighter pilots they're flying solo. It's mm-hmm. all them. So yeah. they're the ones that have the, the uh, big learning curve once they uh, uh, leave the military and, and go to fly with the airlines. Yeah. I had a question yes. I, was, I was dying to ask you before we go for our break. My father grew up in Detroit and he wanted to fight in World War II because he was listening to the bombing of England on his shortwave radio. And two things. First of all, he went across when he was 18 to join. He wanted to be a pilot and he joined in Windsor because the United States wasn't at war at that time. And he came back and he told his dad, I'm going to, you know, the Germans. And his dad said, no, you're not. (laughs) You needed to have your parents' permission at that time. And he was only 18. And my grandfather had a terrible time in World War I. He figured he'd paid his his, uh, debt to society. So my dad had to wait till he's 21. And then he went across. And again, he wanted to join join the, um, the Air Force to be a pilot. But he was too tall. And so he couldn't be a pilot. And he actually ended up as a navigator bombardier. And um, so today, do they still have the height limitations for flying? You know, I guess it's especially in a military, I imagine. But what about in the commercial? I've not heard of anybody being restricted as far as uh, being too tall. Because, uh, uh, well, there is, I was, I, I take that back, is in, uh, when I was at NetJets, uh, I was in the Citation 10, and they had just gotten phenom. I think they're Phenom 400s or 350s. I can't remember the exact model, but the Phenom, the Embraer Phenom, uh, it had a, it has like a handlebar uh, type of yoke. And if you were too tall, that yoke would hit you in the knee. Oh, <laughs> and so there was a, there was a there was a height limitation for that airplane. But uh, beyond that, I I don't know of any other airplane that has that limitation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. My dad credits his father as saving his life because if he had joined the Air Force at that time, <clears throat> he likely would have been involved in the Battle of Britain, even not as a pilot, but as an air crew. And he said there was huge, huge casualty. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, very fortunate. Uh, Steve, if you were to build your own plane, can you fly it without a test or does the government uh, have charge of a plane that you actually built yourself? No, the, uh, I think there is uh, inspection intervals that uh, if, if you build your own airplane, they, a lot of these uh, airplanes come in kits uh, and, they, and they're considered uh, experimental airplanes. Uh, you could uh, build the entire airplane, uh, but before you could take it flying in, in U.S. airspace, you do have to have an inspection by, uh, by a, uh, either a federal FAA uh, maintenance uh, designate or somebody that's designated by the FAA to do that type of inspection in order to sign it off on that airplane to make it airworthy. Circling back uh, to the autopilots, uh, I remember you telling me over 20 years ago that our commercial planes uh, could fly without a a pilot remotely, uh, but you were quite sure that passengers would not get on a plane and it was interesting that the, the exciting new movie, uh, Top Gun Maverick, was focused on uh, an admiral that wanted to do away with pilots that didn't think we needed any fighter pilots anymore, that we could all uh, go with uh, un- unmanned planes. 
and uh, he he lost the battle. But I I don't think anything has really ever changed that uh, I believe we'll always have pilots in the cockpit, whether we need them or not. What do you think, Steve? Well, I agree with that because I know the Air Force is. I think they proved the technology back, you know, probably in the 60s or 70s that they can fly an airplane without a pilot on board. However, uh, I don't know if you remember German Wings. uh, What was it, about 10 years ago? German Wings, where the captain stepped out of the cockpit and the first officer locked him out. When he stepped out, he he went to the bathroom. That, you know, in the European carriers, they didn't have to have a flight attendant step into the the cockpit uh, while another crew member was out just to make sure that that didn't happen. And if, I don't know if you recall, but he ended up uh, flying that airplane uh, into the ground, committing suicide. So wow. I don't think you'll ever have a single pilot in the cockpit. Yeah. Well, we have to go for a break now. Our guest today has been Steve Markham, who's an American Airlines pilot based in Chicago, flying as a captain on the Boeing 737 International. So we'll be right back after the break. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, 
icsc-climate.com. So we're back with Steve Markham, an American Airlines pilot based in Chicago, flying as captain on the Boeing 737. So Jay, you had a question for Steve. Well, I've flown uh, with Steve, uh, not necessarily as a pilot of his big commercial planes, but more often with his uh, own small plane because he's been dropping me out of uh, planes as a skydiver for decades. In fact, Steve uh, helped me set a rather crazy record here in central Ohio of having made a skydive every single month for 34 years and 11 months, uh, finding a plane, finding a plane, place to land. But uh, I would guess that your skydiving adventures of dropping skydivers probably gave you more thrills than many things that ever happened with your big commercial airlines. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there was uh, one one case that uh, I had the owner of the, the drop zone on board with his skydiving team, and he's also a pilot. And as we came up on the drop uh, zone, the door comes open. And the next thing I know, the engine fails. The engine starts running really rough. Uh, what had happened, uh, I guess one of the exhaust valves broke off on one of the cylinders and destroyed everything on that side of the engine. And the engine just quit. It just stopped. dead, stopped. It seized up. And as the owner uh, of the club was climbing out the door uh, with his team, he was fiddling with my throttle. And he was <laughs> trying to figure <laughs> out what was going on, looking at the instruments, trying to figure out because he knew this was, it sounded expensive. And then they left and left me with the airplane at 9,000 feet above club. And it took me almost half an hour to glide that airplane and back to the club. That was a good experience. Uh, so you, you landed without power? Without power. It's just a glider at that point. And yeah. uh, I was right over the top of the field. It just took me forever to get down. You know, 9,000 feet, you're only doing about seven, 800 feet per minute in the descent. So it took me quite a while to get down. Just And as soon as I rolled out, uh, I, I rolled out to the hangar. Before I even got out of the cockpit, the owner had, he was already on the ground. And he was already with a screwdriver uh, removing the cowling so he could pull the engine because he had another one to put in. I always tell people that are nervous when they're flying that, oh, don't worry. Even if the jets go out, even if the engines stop working, this plane can glide. How well does a 737, for example, glide? Well, typically uh, when I was flying for TWA, I mean, I was flying the MD-80. And you could pull the, the, at, at altitude, say 35,000 feet, you could pull the throttle back. And that airplane will glide about 120 miles. Wow. Wow. So what happened in Gimli, Manitoba? You might remember when they didn't measure the oil, the, uh, you know, the air fuel properly. And right. they ran out of fuel and they had to land without power. That's not, I mean, it's extraordinary that that happened. But the fact that they could land without power, that's not extraordinary. No, it's not. You still have an electrical system that are, that are powered by batteries. Now, I think that was a 7.6 that uh, had that, that issue. I'm not sure if that particular 7.6 had a, what they call a ram air turbine rat. They call it a rat. Uh, once you lose all power, this little propeller-driven uh, generator pops out of the bottom of the airplane, and it continues to provide electrical uh, power and hydraulic power. So mm -hmm. they can raise, they, I don't know if they could raise the gear. What, I mean, there's, there's no reason to raise the gear. So you can put the gear down and have your navigation and communication equipment still powered. So unless you're over the ocean, it's not really that dangerous. It's not critically dangerous if you lose power. Well, if you're over the North Atlantic, you may not be within gliding range of land. Oh, yeah. So that's that's where in this time of year, it's a little chilly over the North <laughs> Atlantic. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I was told that originally you had to have four engines to fly across the Atlantic, but now it's it's only required two. Um, Correct. Is that because of the greater reliability of the gas turbine? I believe so. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a four engine airplane. Uh, I think Airbus still makes uh, the 340. I'm not sure which model they have as uh, four engines, but uh, and they're not making 747s anymore. So mm -hmm. most, most of all the new airplanes, wide bodies are all two engine airplanes. Yeah. And how well would the 737 fly with only one engine, by the way? You would have no problem flying the 737 on one engine. It's uh, the only the only difference is uh, you trim the rudder out to uh, compensate for the yaw yeah. of the operating engine. Beyond that, it'll it'll fly wherever you want it to go. Huh. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You may not be able to maintain like thirty five thousand feet. Typically, on a single engine, you get down in the low twenties, uh, and and just and you just drift down, and you'd be able to figure that out looking at the charts on the airplane huh. of what uh, what altitude you can. But once you get down there, and we have these contingency plans in our in our flight planning that we, especially over over mountainous terrain and over uh, long stretches of ocean or water, that if if something were to happen, we would be able to make it to land uh, at a, at an alternate airport on a single engine. Uh huh. I guess it would slow you down, but you it would, would slow you down. You'd make it right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, many of our listeners will remember the air controller strike during the Reagan era when he fired them all and everything got back to normal eventually. What does the job of flight controller entail and how did that strike and its settlement uh, affect flying across America? Well, uh, I'm sure it had an impact uh, back in the day uh, when, they, when, the, when the controllers went out on strike and, and uh, President Reagan fired them. But uh, as, they, as they fired them, the military controllers stepped in. Uh, there may have been uh, reductions in uh, in flights because they couldn't handle all the flights initially, but they were able to get get back up to the speed uh, fairly quickly. And as far as uh, what how it's affected uh, the controllers today, uh, I think they'd think twice about going on strike <laughs> today because uh, I don't think they would put up with it. I, I think I don't think they'd ever strike again because they're they're essential to the system. Well, I have heard that due to a desire for diversity on the airline safety may be declining. Do you have any opinion on that? Uh, not at this time. The uh, diversity of the uh, pilot corps has been uh, upgraded, I guess you would say, over the last probably 15 years. I mean, we think we've got uh, probably three times the amount of the number of women and uh, uh, flying for the airlines of, of all different colors. Uh, and I've, I've flown with just about everybody uh, and I have no, I've had no issues whatsoever. Uh, they're probably some of the sharpest people I've flown with, but the only time will tell if there's going to be uh, any issues in the future. I know the safety, uh, the, the number of pilots right now, we're in a, in a massive pilot shortage at the major airlines. Uh, we tend to take all our pilots from the regional airlines. So the regional airlines are the ones that are hurting the most uh, mm -hmm. and that uh, they're, bring, they're lowering their standards in order to get the number of pilots uh, that they need. And these pilots are coming in as first officers. And before you know it, within a year, sometimes they're even having to force upgrades, force people to upgrade because they don't have enough pilots. So that's where I think you're gonna, we're gonna see problems again. Yeah, it's interesting here in Ottawa, Canada, they have different requirements 
physical strength requirements and, and other things for women, for firefighters, which I always thought was kind of crazy because, I mean, what are you going to say when you call the fire department with a fire? I, I want you to send a strong fireman <laughs> or a strong fire person. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, is it really going to affect safety? Are they to that extent? Are they actually changing the standards that much? No, I think the standards that they are changing uh, in order to get pilots is, uh, is basically uh, amount of flight hours. Hmm. Um, there's no strength requirement to be a, be a pilot. Uh, everything, especially on the airliners, uh, most of your, uh, the yoke, the flight controls are all uh, hydraulically power assisted. It, there's, no, there's no strength requirement uh, hmm. unless you lose hydraulics, of course. And, then it, and that's why there's two pilots up there. You mentioned that you don't think uh, we'll get to the point where commercial airlines will fly with a single uh, pilot in the cockpit, that there'll always be two. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? That's my opinion. Um, I actually did a study with NASA uh, several years ago, and they were testing that theory. I know the FAA and the airlines in the past have all thought it was a great idea to put just one pilot in the cockpit. And if you're looking at the, the cost savings of that, it's, it's astronomical. Uh, no wonder they were they thought it was a good idea. And NASA set out to uh, come up with data because the airlines and the FAA had no data to prove one way or the other, whether this was safer or it was obviously cheaper, but not safer, uh, or at least they didn't have the data to prove that. And so we, I spent two days in a simulator with another, uh, with a captain at that time, I was the first officer. And we going through scenario after scenario based on two pilot uh, operations, one pilot operation and augment. And they never did publish their, publicly, they never, never did publish their findings. But I can tell you from that experience, I don't think we'll ever have a single pilot cockpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, especially if somebody has a heart attack or something. Right, right. I mean, uh, yeah, what are you going to ask, the, you know, make a PA if there's a pilot on board, please go forward. <laughs> what sort of messages do you give after flights? Do you talk about, you know, the local tourism or what, what do you do? <laughs> as far as uh, the passengers? Yeah, when you're uh, talking, you're always landed. Well, I, I just make, I only do pretty much uh, uh, the PAs that I need to make uh, based on, you know, when the seatbelt sign comes off. Sometimes I'll make a pre-boarding, you know, a boarding announcement while they're boarding, and the, you know, at what the weather's going to be like, time and route, what the weather's going to be like, how, what, how the rides are going to be. So I only usually do that when I know that the rides are going to be uh, somewhat less than comfortable mm. uh, on takeoff or in route or in on the arrival, mm-hmm. just to give them a heads up. Steve, yeah. is there any difference in the safety between commercial flight and private flight? I know people that don't want to get on uh, small planes. Uh, they must have read some data that the, the risk on a, uh, a small private plane is considerably greater than a commercial plane. What are your thoughts? Well, it depends on what type of small plane you're talking about. Now, if you're just talking about a private pilot flying a small general aviation airplane, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a huge difference in the experience and training between that pilot and a commercial airline pilot. Uh, as far as corporate uh, aviation, if you're talking about a smaller, like a corporate jet, uh, those pilots have to go through the same training uh, that we do at the airline. Um, is there any variation as to rules of uh flight from state to state? No, it's all federal uh, government mandates the, the regulations uh, throughout the country and their territories. The states don't have any put on that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine actually was on a flight with his wife 
and they hit clear air turbulence where the airplane suddenly fell. And if I understand rightly, that's that's what happens. And he had his seatbelt on. So, you know, he went just up against the seatbelt and his wife was literally on the roof of the cabin. <laughs> oh, my Lord. She didn't get hurt, yeah. did she? I don't know. But um, so it sounds like when in doubt, you should put your seatbelt on. <laughs> you should always have that seatbelt on because you never know. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're always listening ahead, you know, on, on air traffic control. Sometimes we'll hear somebody out ahead of us and give a report of either moderate turbulence or, or worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can avoid that area, we try to. Uh, if we can't avoid it, we, we slow down. Number one, slow down your turbulence penetration speed and warn the flight attendants. Mm-hmm. And, and typically what you're trying to get them to do is uh, if they have the carts out in the aisle, you want to have them put those carts away. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if people are going to become airborne, so will those carts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're pretty heavy. <laughs> so you know, we try to get them to secure the cabin and have a seat and make a PA to the passengers to, you know, if they don't have their seatbelt on, make sure it gets put back on and, and cinched up tight. And try to give, an, give them an idea how long it's going to be. Uh, this turbulence typically it's usually not more than you know 15 30 minutes as you make your way through a certain area that's given us problems yeah one thing i learned in the air force was you should be able to exit the airplane with your eyes closed for example i always try to sit beside the overwing exit because i know that i'm likely to get it open faster than most people since i actually worked in the certification of the 737, for example, I'm amazed how many people will sit beside the overwing exit just because it has more leg space and they don't even pay attention when they're told how to open the thing. Shouldn't people sort of practice mentally in their in their head? How would I get out if it was too smoky or dark or whatever? Shouldn't they do that? Most people should, especially if you're sitting in the exit row. I mean, you should read the, the emergency uh, card that's sitting in the seat back in front of you, but also look at the door. When you look at the door, it has instructions on how to expose the handle and how and which way to rotate that handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most of the uh, modern airplanes today, like, like the 737 and the Airbus, uh, that's a powered door over the wing. All you have to do is move that handle to one, and, it, and that door just flies open on its own. Mm-hmm. Not unlike some of your older airplanes, like the DC-9s, MDAs, where you actually had, it's a plug door. And you mm-hmm. had to actually open the door and then lift that door out and set it in the seat. Now, that, that takes a little bit more practice. I mean... But uh, the new doors, it's just you move that handle, that door opens up automatically and the slides outside that door automatically inflate. So, yeah, it's something you need to go over in your mind if you've ever had to do something like that. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading that one of the reasons people die when they have rough, you know, they crash or something is because people run the wrong way because they haven't actually paid attention to the instructions from the stewardess or the steward. And they don't have a clue what to do. So, I mean, surely the, the answer is to rehearse in your mind. Okay. If I want to get out over the overwing exit, I go seven rows up, turn right or left or whatever. Surely that's something people should be doing. Not only that, but before you open that door, make sure you know what's on the other side of that door. Oh, right. Look through that porthole. If there's a fire, don't open the door, have a backup plan. Where's the other exit on the other side of the airplane. Is that one on fire? Go forward, go aft. You know, uh, with, and you can imagine the, the mayhem uh, with having you know, like 170 people on board, everybody out of their seat and trying to go one way or the other. You know, it's, that's where the flight attendants come in. That's why we have to have flight attendants on board airplanes in order to direct the evacuation. Yeah. So you don't like it when people just ignore the flight attendants or continue reading their book. <laughs> I've had some fun on flights where I 
I got to sit in the exit row and the flight attendant came by and asked if I was prepared to open the door. And I would say, oh, I am. I did it last week. And of course, everybody, <laughs> everybody would get a little nervous about it. And then I would yeah. explain that I'm, uh, yeah. I'm a skydiver. Well, the biggest but problem is, is I, uh, when the flight attendants come up to the exit row, the boarding process, and ask the passengers if they are willing and able to open the door. And half the people in the exit rows are wearing earbuds and not even paying attention to what she's saying. That's, uh, I guess, one of the biggest threats we have out there, earbuds. Now, now uh, Steve, if I have a pilot's license and I own a large farm, can I build a runway and, and use it, or do I have to have a federal supervision? Well, you can't have a private strip. You can't have a, uh, on, a on your own farm if you have, you know, clear way. I mean, but you got to be careful. Like, for example, if you're living uh, within five miles of a major airport, you may not be able to do that because uh, the restricted airspace around, say, Chicago, it emanates out about, I think, five miles in it from the surface up to like 10,000 feet. So if you have a farm in that, in that area or any, around any major airport that's considered Class B airspace, so you'd have a problem. You, you can't do that. But if you're outside that airspace, yeah, I think you could do that. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get it, uh, if you want to get your private strip on the sectional charts or the aviation charts, uh, you have, there's probably a few more hoops you'd have to jump through with the FAA in order to have that happen. You and I were flying to uh, New Orleans uh, a couple months ago, and it was interesting. It was sort of like a car trip because periodically we had to stop for gas and there'd be a literally a airline gas station that we would land on the strip and put a credit card in the machine and fill our plane up away we go. How much control does the FAA have over literally airline gas stations for the public? Well, I'm sure the, these municipal airports have to go through a certification process to put a pump on the, on the airport. And because it's not just putting the pump in the tank and there's a, a process where they have to test that fuel every day and to make sure it's no water pooling in the tanks and, and so on. And, it, and I'm not sure what the, the process goes through, but getting back to that flight to New Orleans, Jay, I, you know, we really didn't have to stop for gas. It was more of a biological stop <laughs> for gas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Under, understood. Can uh, the FAA forcibly ground uh, private aircraft if they think things are not safe? It depends on what you consider not, not safe. Uh, if, if there was a problem with that uh, particular airplane, if like, for example, Ember-Riddle, uh, the school that I went to down in Daytona several years ago, they had a, a flight instructor and an examiner. If federal aviation examiner, it may have been a designee, take off in a, a Piper Arrow. And on that departure, that the wing came off the airplane. And, and so they went through the wreckage. They determined that the wing came off due to uh, cracks in the wing mounts. And so they went back to the university, which had another half a dozen arrows sitting on the ramp and inspected those airplanes. They also had wing cracks. So they put out a, a directive to ground all the, uh, that type of aircraft until inspections could be made. They can do that. But as far as uh, if you're going into say, if I were wanted to fly from Columbus to Chicago in my private plane, could they say, no, you can't go? Well, 
if I'm going IFR instrument flight rules and I need a clearance to do that, if there's weather in Chicago and it's backing up, yes, they can hold me on the ground here in Columbus because they don't have room for me in the airspace. And they, they would give me uh, like an expect further clearance time as to when I might be able to get a space uh, in the air system to get into Chicago. They could hold me on the ground for that. But if I'm flying visually under visual flight rules, VFR, I could pretty much do whatever I want as far as that goes. Uh, then I would have to just put up with consequences once I get over there because uh, Chicago wouldn't accept me anyway. Mm -hmm. So then I'd have to probably end up landing somewhere else for fuel. Are, Steve, are international flight rules uh, different than our own here in the United States? Very similar. Uh, the ICAO uh, international rules are very similar to what we have in the United States. The United States was always uh, behind in that for m most of the time that I've been flying. And they seem to try to keep up, you know, bringing the United States up to the ICAO standards. For example, one of the rules that we have in the United States, like, for example, if I'm departing or arriving in an airport uh, via a, an arrival procedure, if I were to, like, Vegas. Vegas, uh, you'll see on the arrival procedure a lot of fixes along the way, and each fix has a, an altitude and an airspeed and or an airspeed as you go in. Now, if the controller says uh, descend to a certain altitude, even though it's on the arrival uh, that it's that I can't go below this altitude at this fix in the United States, I can just go right on down to that altitude and disregard all those fixes prior to that. Canada, for example, you can't do that. So if they, they clear me to a lowest like 3000 feet going into Toronto, but I'm on an arrival procedure. I have to abide by those altitudes at the various fixes. So it still hasn't caught up. The United States still hasn't caught up with uh, the rules of ICAO. I have, uh, if I have a U.S. pilot's license, can I fly to Mexico, Canada, Paris? Sure. Yep. If you can find an airplane, well, Mexico, you could fly down there, but you would have to file an international flight plan in order to, because you'd have to clear their customs. You'd have to leave the United States from a port of, uh, from a uh, port of entry airport and then fly to Mexico and clear customs down there. Canada is the same way. Canada is a lot more easy uh, to their customs. I mean, they, Basically, you call them up a couple hours prior to your departure and say, hey, I'm going to a little airport near Toronto. And they say, okay, give us a call when you get there. So you, you land, there's nobody on the airport. And you say, here I am, I'm at this airport. And they say, anything to declare? No. And they give you a number, you put it in the window, you're done. Huh. Canada is probably the easiest uh, country to clear customs than any other country. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Let's talk maps and iPads. We used to see pilots carry a big rectangular black case full of maps or charts. Now we understand all they need is an iPad. How does that work? Just as you would expect, uh, we have uh, all of our charts, all of our company documents, uh, all on apps in, in the iPad. Uh, I would say it's, you know, back in the day when we did carry those big chart, those big cases with all the charts, those charts had to be updated every 28 days. And so we would get envelopes full of, of updates. And we, we would spend hours updating not only the end route charts, but the approach arrival plates. But now it's, I just tap a button, everything updates automatically. And, it's, and that's not only the navigation charts, but it's also the company manuals. It's, it's a great way for the company to keep everybody up to date. And they can also track that. Uh, the company can see whether you, you haven't updated your, uh, your company manual or your, your Jefferson uh, charts. And uh, 
so they can get on you for that. Mm, yeah. I had a couple of personal questions to end off because we just have a few minutes. Um, when you were a boy, did you dream about being a pilot? Is this something that you've had a love for? No, I, I don't think I, I mean, I always had, had a wonder about aviation, but never, it was too far away to even, even consider, uh, even thinking about. Uh, and then I joined the Air Force as a mechanic and, uh, and I worked, uh, my first uh, base was Columbus, Mississippi. It was a training base and uh, they flew T-37s, T-38s and I was a line mechanic. And, you know, I also, I worked the line and I also worked heavy maintenance. So these pilots would come in and I'd, I'd be talking to these, these uh, Air Force pilots. And some of these guys had degrees in art. Uh, at that time, we were training Iranians to fly. And I, I figured I'd rather fly them than work on them. Uh, mm. And so I, I set out to, uh, to start flying. And that's, I just went off base uh, to a local airport and uh, got my private license and, and went from there. Yeah, wow. My second base in the military was Upper Havard, England. And we had F-111. And uh, occasionally take people up... Uh, uh, Crew chiefs, uh, they would they would put them in the right seat of the uh, the fighter with an instructor pilot, and that was like an incentive thing. They would take them up and uh, and let them fly. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, and even when I was at uh, when in the reserves, Air Force reserves at Wright Patterson, I was actually uh, on the list to get a ride in the F four, and went mm -hmm. through the ejection training and everything else. It just never came to be. I had to do the high altitude indoctrination where they turn the oxygen down and then you're supposed to write on a piece of paper. Right. And then later, mm -hmm. later you look at it, it's all gobbledygook. <laughs> so what about this business of jet lag? I mean, just for a normal passenger, it can be hard if you fly to England, but surely for pilots, it must be, must be really hard. <laughs> Those guys are used to it. They've been doing it for years. Uh, when they typically get to uh, like England or wherever they're going, I did this for many years too when I was with TWA. You had a schedule, you know, you, you try not to, when you get to London, you don't automatically convert to their time. You stay on your local body clock time and try to assimilate that way. And that way, when you come back through all those time zones, you're not beat up. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's easier to go westbound than it is eastbound. If you think yeah. about that. Because you just stay up a bit later. Right. Right. If, right. if, if you're changing. Right. Yeah. So overall, are you glad that you became a pilot? <laughs> well, it, looking back, it's, it was kind of turbulent. You know, when I went in, uh, when started flying and, and got into the airlines, the airline industry was turned upside down. I mean, it was just one bankruptcy after another. And you really couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas today, if you're, if you're, if you wants to start flying today, all you have to do is get with a, a flight school. They'll make student loans. And you can actually see in two years, you'll be flying with a regional airline. When you get on with that regional airline, say, for example, American Eagle, and you get, once you're off probation, they will give you a, what, a date in which you will flow to American. Mm. And so the path is all there for you. Uh, whereas when I started, you didn't, uh, a lot of the guys that I started with or flew with, uh, a lot of them uh, didn't make it. I mean, they, they, they had enough of the industry and went back to what they were doing before. Uh, today, if, there's actually a fact, but and that was true before COVID. Whoever would have thought COVID would have done what it did, you know, huh? that it disrupted the airline industry so much. And we went back to furloughing again. Uh, but now we're kind of back on solid footing again, uh, needing pilots. Uh, and we still have record retirement every year. And mm -hmm. that, that's, that's forecast uh, to continue on the next five to 10 years. So there's a, there's a great demand for airline pilots today. 
Wow, that's great now, to hear. S- Steve, you're approaching retirement age. What are your uh, plans when you stop flying for American? Oh, I continue. I plan on continuing uh, flying uh, privately uh, as a flight instructor. Uh, I'm also a, a mechanic. Uh, I have my A and P license along with inspection authorization. So I have two airplanes. I have one of the airplanes I own with my wife and sister-in-law. We have that at least back uh, to one of the flight clubs at Ohio State. And uh, they keep me busy working on that airplane. They're not very ginger with it. They like, you know, so constantly changing tires and uh, cylinders on the engine. So it's going to keep me busy. And, you know, who knows, maybe, uh, maybe we have room for another airplane. We'll see. My wife doesn't think so, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I must comment personally that I have flown, my wife and I have flown with uh, you and your wife across country a, a number of times. And uh, you make an amazing flight team. You know, people joke about never uh, teach your wife to drive, uh, you know, or park a car. Of course, your wife has long had a uh, pilot's license. But uh, to watch the two of you work together flying over the uh, Appalachian Mountains one uh, year was uh, really beautiful to see. Yeah, Patty loves flying. But most of the time, we'll just swap seats uh, depending on which leg and and she'll fly, you know, and I'll, and I'll work the radios or I'll fly and she'll work the radios. So it's, you're just trying to keep, keep us both uh, current in the airplane. Mm-hmm. We have to wrap up, unfortunately. I'd love to keep talking. I had lots more questions, but our interviewee today has been Steve Markham, an American Airlines pilot based in Chicago, a pilot, a captain of the Boeing 737. So thanks for being on the show, Steve. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Great well, show. Is- Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. This is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story.